From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. David Sedlak's new book about the global water crisis starts with a simple premise. None of this is new. Human settlements have always and obviously needed to be close to a source of water. When those settlements are successful, populations grow, and that access becomes strained. Crisis ensues, and these crises have shaped human history. So the bad news is that we're in a crisis right now. About one in 10 people across the globe lacks access to clean water, and this resource is likely to be further strained as we continue to press up against the 10 billion people who are expected to be living together on this planet sometime around the year 2080. That number, by the way, is based on very modest extensions of human lifespans. If that shift happens not so modestly, we're going to be sharing this planet with even more people. And we'll be doing that in a world in which the climatological patterns that dictate water availability may be drastically changed as a result of global warming. So now for the good news. Humans have solved water crises before. We've done it again and again. And Sedlak says we can do it once more on a global scale. We can have water for all. That's the title of his new book. Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Planet, which is out now from Yale University Press. David Sedlak, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matthew. I wanted to start this conversation in one of my favorite towns in California, Santa Barbara, which fans of the fictional television show Psych will recognize as the murder capital of the world. And Anyone who's actually ever been to Santa Barbara will attest it's just a lovely, delightful little coastal city. If that is, one can afford to live there. Talk about how Santa Barbara's water crisis began. Well, you would think that Santa Barbara would be the last place on Earth where anyone would suffer any kind of crisis. But when <laughs> Santa Barbara started to grow, it Geography left it disconnected from the imported water system that brings water uh, from the northern part of California down to the southern part of the state. And so they had to make do on their own water, which was a local groundwater source and a few reservoirs in the hills. And so California has notoriously variable climate. And when they had a period of less than normal rainfall for about a decade and growing populations, it became clear that they were running out of water. And so there's this crazy plan, desalination, which has been used in other places at times, but Santa Barbara really doubled down on this plan. They realized that they had few alternatives to desalination. It was either find a way to hook the city up to the state project, which would deliver water from uh, outside of the basin, or find their own water supply. And they turned to desalination because seawater desalination was the way that water-scarce, wealthy places like the Middle East obtains its water. So they could call some of those same companies up and have them come and build a desalination plant. Desalination is pretty expensive. That's really the big obstacle for coastal areas is just the expense, right? Well, when they first tried to build a desalination plant in the 1990s, it was really expensive, but they had no alternative, so they invested in it. And then 
like what usually happens when you invest a lot of money in a water infrastructure project to deal with scarcity, it started to rain and the drought ended and they mothballed <laughs> the, the treatment plant and even sold parts of it off because they didn't think they'd ever need it again. Fast forward a couple of decades and another drought comes, a more severe drought than the one in the 1990s. And they dusted off the plans for their desalination plant. And probably most importantly, they'd retained the permit that allowed them to stick a pipe into the ocean and pull out seawater for desalination. So they built a modern desalination plant. And in the interim 20 years between their first and second desalination plant, the price dropped by close to half. And that desalination plant looked like a pretty reasonable investment for a drought-proof water supply that could give them up to 30% of the city's needs. What I love about this story is that it has both this really great example of good forethought, right? We're going to hold on to this permit. And then also this really great example of really poor forethought, which is, hey, the rains have come. Happy days are here again. We don't need this desalination plant. Well, remember, any piece of infrastructure that you don't use is a stranded asset. And so you're busy paying interest payments on something that you bought for many tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so you're desperate to recover some of the cost from the mistake you made building uh, what seemed like a white elephant at the time. So that was that was how they hoped to lessen the pain of paying for a non-functioning treatment plant. So you just use the words tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars Santa Barbara has these resources. It wasn't easy, but, you know, it's a pretty rich city and a pretty rich state and one of the richest countries in the world. If we have enough resources, we can solve water crises. They're almost always solvable in that way. But here's the obvious rub. Not every community that is afflicted by water crises has those sorts of resources. And in fact, and this should not be particularly surprising to anyone, poorer communities are more likely to be stricken by water shortages, right? Yeah. The, in the United States, the communities that face the greatest challenges from water crises are rural communities. So they have not only more poverty, but they don't have the economies of scale that a big city would have. So really, when we look around the United States, the places where we see the greatest crises tend to be rural America and our reservations and our unincorporated communities where people rely on wells. And when we look around the world, it's, of course, the low and middle income countries where you have mega cities where people are making less than a half or less than a quarter of the amount of money that people make in North America. So it's really hard for utility to bill customers for the cost of building something like a desalination plant, because it's just as expensive to build a desalination plant in South America or Southeast Asia or India as it is to build one in Santa Barbara. Let's talk about one of those mega cities. You write about Sao Paulo in Brazil. This is a city that has historically gotten more than a meter of rain each year, but the patterns that dictate that precipitation have been changed uh, pretty substantially by deforestation and ocean warming. And Sao Paulo ran into its own water crisis, too. What did they do? Well, Sao Paulo had also, in addition to suffering from 
less rainfall and less water making it to their reservoirs. They'd also lost some of their reservoir capacity by the expansion of the favelas or slums around them. And so uh, when they ran into a water crisis, there was a period in which the pressure had to build on the government to act. And the first thing that they did was they started to restrict the amount of water that people could use and turn off the system at certain times of the day. And as the political pressure built and people suffered from not having enough water, it became possible for them to borrow money and to raise their utility rates to pay to interconnect parts of the system that didn't have water to parts of the system that did have water. And then after that, they were able to spend some money and figure out where all of the water was leaking out of their system because uh, they were losing about a third of the water that they put in the distribution system just through leaky pipes. And they didn't have enough money to go and track down those pipes and fix them. So once a crisis started to build, they had political ability and the financial possibilities of going and making the system more efficient. There were a lot of concerns at that time that Sao Paulo was going to like descend into chaos. That didn't happen. Sao Paulo is still a thriving city. Sure. It's it's absolutely a thriving city and it came back afterwards. But the real long-term lesson that they learned is that when a city seems like a place that might not have enough water, people tend to lose confidence in it. And so businesses might be more reluctant to invest and people may think twice before moving there. And so it has a subtle impact on the future prospects of a city, even if they manage to escape the the true economic consequences of an extended drought. Santa Barbara is a pretty rich city. Sao Paulo is a a middle-income city, but it's a large city with a lot of resources. It was able to, as you said, borrow money. And reflecting on the ways that cities like Sao Paulo and Santa Barbara have addressed their water crises, you wrote that residents of high and middle income cities of the world ultimately have the means of mounting a robust response to water crisis. But that's not the case everywhere, right? Sure. And the places where people really suffer the most from water scarcity are the people who are not connected to a water system. So there are about 800 million people in the world who have what the United Nations defines as uh, unimproved water supplies. That means that they rely upon uh, an unfiltered well, they have to walk long distances to get water, or they're buying water from a truck that shows up in their neighborhood. And these folks are paying a relatively high proportion of their annual income and they're spending a lot of time, and the water that they ultimately get may not even be healthy for them. So they're the ones who really come under additional strain when water scarcity hits. So what are the major obstacles to fixing that problem and and keeping it fixed as our global population expands, particularly when we're talking about the rural poor? Like, how do we get that 800 million people to zero million people who are water impoverished? Well, Matthew, the good news is that we're actually on the road to getting those 800 million people connected and we're making progress every decade. It's just not fast enough for us. The two ways in which we're seeing more and more people gain access to drinking water in these kinds of rural communities is through global development and increases in wealth. And so when you look over the decadal time scale at 
parts of the world where there's a lot of poverty, you see that economic development is leading to increased wealth. And as people get wealthier, they can afford to build water systems and support water systems. And so many of the people that have come out of poverty, as they've come out of poverty, they've brought along safe water systems and sanitation with them as one of the things that they buy with that additional income. The second way in which we're helping people get away from that water crisis of not being connected to a safe water supply is through international aid. And there are groups around the world like water.org or some of the various uh, charities that donate money to create capacity to build wells, to develop treatment systems, to find simple ways of harvesting rainwater to help people transition from that unimproved water source to something that's more reliable and healthy. Relative to that first group you mentioned, that's the group that's benefiting from economic expansion. You used Ethiopia as an example. This was one of the poorest nations in the world through the 1990s and had some of the poorest access to clean water. That's changed significantly in the past 30 years. Do you think that greater access to water follows economic growth or does economic growth come as a result of expanded access to water? Is this a chicken and an egg thing? If you got to put your, if you got to put all your eggs in a basket, oh my gosh, I'm mixing a lot of metaphors here. You know, what do we focus on? Do we focus on providing the water and letting that be an engine of growth, or do we focus on the growth and letting letting that be an engine for clean water? In the case of Ethiopia, it really seemed like it was the economic development that fueled the access to water and not the other way around. But there certainly were benefits that came with uh, access to water and sanitation that enabled people to send their children to school, to avoid waterborne diseases, to save more of their money for things that they needed. And that probably fed into the economy. But in a place like Ethiopia, it was often the growth that took place in the city that made the government wealthier and allowed urban dwellers to buy produce that was grown in the countryside. And that filtered down to help alleviate some of the rural poverty and ultimately supported the water systems that allowed people to obtain that access. You've been pretty clear that you don't believe there's a one-size-fits-all solution to all of the different and variable crises that are occurring in the globe right now in regards to water availability. But I, I do want to chat with you about some of the solutions that are out there, some things we already know work and work really well. One of them, which I sort of gather is one of your favorites, has to do a little bit with the book Dune by Frank Herbert. And in this book, there is something called a still suit. This is a full body suit worn in the desert that allows its wearers to preserve their body's moisture, which is kind of a gross idea, but you know, you do what you got to do when you're in Dune world. You've likened this to what water engineers have been doing in Southern California for a quarter century. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, in parts of Southern California that developed later, like uh, Orange County, the area between Los Angeles and San Diego, they don't have the same sort of water rights to the Colorado River and some of those other imported water sources that everyone knows is the basis for keeping Los Angeles going. And so they were very much aware that they might someday run into water scarcity. And they saw the idea of 
mining the treated wastewater flowing out of their sewage treatment plants and cleaning it and putting it back into the aquifer as one way of augmenting their water supply. And they also saw that the rainwater that fell within the city might not be a nuisance that caused flooding, but it might be an opportunity to recharge the groundwater aquifer. So for about 50 years, they've been building projects to take whatever water they have and prevent it from leaving their little dune world, which is uh, Orange County, and flowing out to the ocean. And so whenever they can, they take the wastewater, they take the stormwater, they take whatever water's there, and they treat it, clean it, and get it back in the underground. And that underground serves as their water supply because they're reliant upon groundwater. One of the things that a lot of people fretted over as these technologies were coming online and these developments were being invested in is, you know, the yuck factor. They were worried that people, once they realized what was going on, would oppose this. That hasn't happened, though, correct? Oh, it happened at first. There were a few uh, high-profile projects proposed in the late 1990s that went down in flames when journalists started talking about toilet to tap uh, and everyone started freaking out. But in the past 20 years, the utilities down there have done an admirable job explaining to the public what they're doing, why they're doing it, embracing transparency, and showing that they're really at the top of their game in terms of understanding whether there really are any health risks associated with this practice and whether it is something more than just uh, the strange perception of seeing your water a second time. Past the yuck factor, what's holding up more cities in a still suit? Why isn't this more common? Oh, I think that many cities have a long way to go before they get to the point of trying to close the water cycle and keep all their water in. There's still plenty of cities that haven't done everything they can to embrace conservation. There are many cities where water still leaks out of the distribution pipes. There are many cities that don't need to go to this extent. But what we're seeing now is that those cities that have gotten to this point are really joining in a movement to embrace this idea of water recycling. And so what has happened a little bit is that Southern California has shown what's possible and they've shown that they can sustain it for a few decades. And now we're seeing people in Arizona and Colorado and Texas and New Mexico and Florida and Georgia and Virginia and other parts of the United States jumping on the bandwagon and building their own versions of the uh, advanced water treatment plants that have been serving Southern California. So it's kind of like uh, if you think of the tech field as me first, the water field is often me second. And now there are a lot of seconds trying to get into this approach of recycling water at the city scale. I always like the old phrase, everybody wants to be first to be second. Um, but that's good, right? Because if the first is showing you a good example, in this case, this first comes from California, which as a California native, a native of the Bay Area myself, I kind of like, I think everybody hates Californians, but once in a while we, we get it right. So so I like this a lot. One challenge that you write about in the process of closing this system, either a little or a lot, is the location of wastewater treatment plants. These are 
very big. They're typically situated toward the end of the line in a system that was built on the notion that water came in and wastewater came out and, you know, we never saw it again. So you have suggested that one solution might be small local plants, like neighborhood scale treatment plants. Is this happening anywhere? The idea of neighborhood scale treatment plants and even building scale treatment plants is getting a serious look because uh, you avoid this problem of having to build pipes and send water over long distances. The, the challenge has been historically this diseconomies of scale. So large treatment mm-hmm. plants have economies of scale and you can have full-time operators there working on this. And so the real challenge moving forward, and this is one of the areas of my my own research with uh, the National Alliance for Water Innovation, a program funded by the Department of Energy, has been to make modular treatment systems that are plug and play and can operate without a person present. And so now imagine that our treatment plants start to look like washing machines and uh, and laundromats and other types of appliances that don't need someone with a lot of expertise to run. And it opens up the possibility of treating water at the household scale, at the building scale, or at the neighborhood scale, and not having someone watching that treatment plant 24 hours a day. But I think that's still, I don't know, maybe a decade or two away before it becomes commonplace. As you say, we don't have to do this at the city or neighborhood scale, we can do this at the building by building scale. Back in 2019, a new building in Curitiba, Brazil, became the first building in the world to earn a zero water certification from the lead organization. And what that suggests is that this building will return as much water to the source as it takes in. Um, I know that can be a little hard for people to conceptualize a little bit. Can you kind of explain how a building can essentially be zero water? Sure. And and I think buildings like the one in Brazil and the Bullet Center in Seattle are great uh, examples of what's possible. But what I'm really excited about is that we're getting to a point where these might actually be cost effective and a positive return on investment. So Within a building, a lot of the water that's used ends up going down the drain, going down the toilet, maybe the shower, the laundry, and that can be recycled in the basement of the building and reach a quality that's sufficient for flushing the toilets, for using in cooling towers, for using in outdoor irrigation, for using in the laundry. So you can have a second set of pipes for those lower quality so-called non-potable uses. Now you look at the other needs for water, the water coming into the kitchen, uh, water coming into the shower, and you have to find another source of that. And there are lots of sources available to buildings. Some buildings can use rainwater tanks on the roof. If you live in a place that is arid and doesn't have enough rainwater, you can look underground. There's often shallow groundwater or even water that leaks into the foundations of buildings that can be pumped and, and used as a water supply. And even if you start thinking about the possibility of taking some of that gray water, that is the water from the shower or the water from the the sink in the house and treating it to the point where it's potable again, you get to this point where you start looking like the International Space Station or, or like a still suit and you could close the loop essentially, maybe only relying upon the water that comes into the house and the groceries that you purchase to top up anything that you lose through evaporation and other losses. So it's completely feasible 
and there are starting to be buildings that do this. The question is, how do we make that cost effective, attractive, and safe? And I gather you think that we are quickly approaching cost effective, attractive, and safe. All of those variables are getting closer and closer by the day, right? They get closer. And I think the other thing that they're doing is they're getting co-mingled with this idea of energy neutral buildings. So an energy neutral, a water neutral building seems like a logical next step after an energy neutral building. And that means that some wealthy people are going to invest in these technologies and they're going to undergo what is often referred to as the learning curve process where every generation of treatment systems that get built, we learn things, we figure out how to make them less expensive and they become less expensive and less expensive, just like rooftop solar panels became less expensive, just like cell phones and computers became less expensive. Something that seems a little bit like a a plaything for the rich today might be an essential ingredient in homes in middle-income and lower-income countries in 20 or 30 years. That's David Sedlak. He's a professor of environmental engineering at UC Berkeley and the author of Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Planet. David, thank you. Thanks for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, and you can help support this program too at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our producer is Nick Porath. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>